Welcome to The Local Authority, the podcast by Local Government Chronicle and TPX Impact. Each month, we bring together leading figures from within and around local government to discuss the sector's future. If you enjoy listening to The Local Authority, hit the subscribe button to have new episodes delivered to your device each month. You can share this podcast with your colleagues by going to lgcplus.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to The Local Authority, the podcast from Local Government Chronicle and TPX Impact. I'm Sarah Kalkin, the LGC Editor. The Local Authority brings together some of the biggest names in and around local government to discuss some of the biggest issues facing the sector. Today we're going to be discussing diversity, equity and inclusion in local government, with a panel who have both personal and professional experience of these issues. Across society, businesses and other organisations have woken up to the importance of diversity in the workforce and the improvements it can bring to decision making. In local government, it would seem even more important that councils reflect the communities they serve amongst both officers and members. Yet too often, and especially at senior levels, this is not the case. To discuss why that is and what we can do about it, let me introduce our panel for today. We have Bev Craig, Leader of Manchester City Council, Shazia Hussein, Deputy Chief Executive at the London Borough of Waltham Forest, and Laura Harris, Consultancy and Change Director at TPX Impact. So, hello everyone. Good morning. And I should perhaps just front up our own diversity issue on this podcast and that we haven't got it. Uh, any male guests that's not for for want of um inviting but unfortunately the, the times the times didn't work um so perhaps we could just kick off though with some some personal reflections i mean in your ex- experience um how inclusive do you think local government is as a sector and and have you personally faced a- any prejudice in your careers and um can i can i start with you beth um, yeah, sure. So, so I I was first elected um, to council back in 2011. Um, held a, a range of roles since then. Before last year, becoming leader um, of the city council, uh, the first woman uh, to do so, and one of only a handful um, of openly gay women leaders um, in in local government or product or, or, or politics more broadly. Um, I'd also say that I started out my professional career working as an officer. Um, in a council in local government. So it sort of gives me a slightly different um, perspective. Um, but, but I think like every sector, we have our challenges and we have to make sure that the organisations that we lead, the organisations that we run um, and organisations that have such immense responsibilities to our local communities um, feel and look and sound like the people that they're there to serve. Um, we, we've had some of our own journeys in, in Manchester, you know, times when we thought we've done things really well and actually learning and listening from staff, showing that there's always room for improvement and things to be done. Um, I, th- I think for me, I, I suppose that the world's become um, more complex when we experience um, a lack of inclusion or, or discrimination. Um, and, and the role of intersectionality in some of that is something that we really need to, to tease out. So. Um, in, in my career, I've no doubt at different times faced challenges, um, either because of my gender, because of my sexuality or because of my age. 
and at times the three can intersect. So um, we, we have to be honest that, of course, there are challenges out there. And I imagine the reason that we've all come together is because each in our own ways, we, we've got a particular view on what it is that we need to do to deal with them. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Beth. And uh, Shazif? Um, yeah, uh, so I suppose for me, it's, but it's about who you ask the question to, uh, depending on what response you get. For me personally, um, I think it's been different at different points in my career in the public sector. So I've been working in the public sector for 25 years. For most of those years, I've been a senior officer, so I've been a sort of director level. Um, and um, I think that for me personally, there's been it's been inclusive. In some cases, it's been really inclusive, and other times I've felt quite discriminated against. So it's just changed depending on where my kind of career pattern was or where I was in my working life. I think when we talk to staff, I mean, a lot of local authorities, you know, we're spending a lot of time talking to our staff on this agenda and, and really thinking deeply about what this means for us as a sector. Um, the, I think some staff, particularly staff from the black and ethnic minority communities, um, feel that it's not doesn't always feel that inclusive. Um, and, and that's just me being honest. That's not to say that we're not trying to make things better and improve and really listen deeply. But I think that um, it depends on what level as well you are within the organisation. Um, and local authorities, you know, that what I call the kind of triangle factor. So you've got the sort of um, uh, large majority, uh, I'm going to talk particularly about race, I think, but um, large majority of staff often in London, represented from those communities, but not necessarily represented at the top. So that says something about leadership, that says something about um, how we formulate policies, etc. And often mem often those diversities are reflected in the members, in the councillors, but not always at the top tier in terms of leadership. So I think it partly depends on who you ask, but I, th I think it can feel not that inclusive for some people and more inclusive for others. Yeah, yes, and I guess I was aware when asking that question. I mean, local government is a, as a sector is very diverse. There's lots of different services and, and everything within that, isn't there? So, um, Laura, what, what's your experience? So, prior to joining TPX, I worked in uh, local authorities for about six years. Um, before that, I was in the private sector, um, although a lot of it kind of working into government. And my experience of local government was actually quite different um, to the private sector um, and obviously all organisations are different and I completely uh, accept that all local authorities are different but I did get an opportunity to work with a number of local authorities in my role. Um, it, diversity was much more visible um, and, um, and an, a real openness. Um, women in senior roles, um, you know, as my experience it was significantly better um, in terms of the level of diversity, but also that that sense of openness and transparency about you know who you were and who could bring who you were when you came to work. Um, I often use the example where I think um, in the first few weeks of working in local government, I had engaged with more openly queer people um, than I had in the decade previously. Um, you know, so I think I think it's important to recognise that actually local government does attract um, you know from a diverse group. Um, um, in comparison to the private sector, in my experience. Um, and I think that journey, there's a journey that, that's gone on. It was a decade or so before um, that I've been in the private sector 
um, previously. So I know that there's lots of work been done there, but I think it is, it is in, it, when I joined definitely and, and remained in a pretty good place. Um, but I think saying that I have absolutely felt levels of bias. Um, and during my time, I think there's, um, I think there's something about that that isn't very open. I think it's about the subtlety of that in terms of things that we hear quite regularly about um, the way you're sometimes spoken to or about um, the way that um, people engage with you in in group meetings, um, um, the sense of kind of how you what does success look like and how do you you navigate those routes? I think um, are, are impacted. Um, um, and there does remain a, a lack of representation, which is illustrative of the fact that actually that there isn't com a completely level playing field. Um, but there are areas where we do much better. Um, I think the, um, which I think needs to be reflected. I think some, there's been some research recently about um, the level of diversity in social care, for example. Um, or I think it's almost a quarter of the social care um, worker group is from a minority ethnic background um and i think that's that that is highly important and those individuals who are working on the coalface with some of the most vulnerable you know young people or old people um are in fact um you know quite representative um but i think that there's still work to do yeah so <clears throat> i think you kind of all touched on there the fact i, I liked how you described it as there's a triangle there's sort of, there is there is often diversity at the lower levels, but it's not it's not making trickling through. So, what? Why do you think that is? Um, so, so the, just picking up the point Laura made about um, uh, you know having a large representation of particularly black and ethnic minority communities represented in social care, and that's that's a good thing. I agree, but actually, if you look at London councils in twenty twenty one, I think it was uh, did quite an extensive piece of work across all local authorities looking at this whole issue around race inequality and where 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 uh, staff from black and ethnic communities are represented in the organizations. And things have changed. So I think in twenty eleven, the figure at the top sort of the the sort of senior level, tier one, two, tier three, uh, was something like just under, just over 8%. And in 2021, it's 20%. But that's still really low. That's still not good enough. Um, and um, ha and somebody who's worked through that, that, that process and being a senior officer, I was in, I was, I was a director for a council for, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe sort of 10 or 12 years, um, where I was the only one. I was the only, and I was representing and serving a community that was 50% um, Asian. And yet those people were not reflected in the organisation. They were actually really well represented in the members, but not necessarily in that. That's the point I was making earlier. I yeah. think actually our members are getting much better. Uh, they're much better at, you know, they are representing their communities and their communities vote for them. Staff are selected in a slightly different way and you know there's a different process and and that gets played out and I think it is changing but sorry the question you were asking was what you know why is that I think that we it is a bit complex but we haven't been very good I think at succession planning and we haven't been very good at thinking about 
how do we take those those staff we do have them in the organizations how do we take them and really work and develop whether they are women or people with disabilities or or people with different faith or sexuality or whatever that might be or race how do we ensure that they are reflected in all tiers of the organization and how do we develop those and i just want to just touch on that point about um why there are higher representation of certain groups in certain types of jobs. So you do get more black and Asian, black, particularly black Afro-Caribbean communities in the social care sector. There's also a historical factor around that as well. Traditionally, when communities came from those, com- from those countries into, into the UK, often in nursing, often in social care, and that gets carried through the families. In the Asian community, you tend to get more uh, Asian representation in the corporate centre, actually. And that's also to do with, I'm from the Asian community, I know what, there's something that goes on in the family that talks about where you think is, where, where you think is a job that's considered to be valued. Um, and, and so it's sort of, those are the complexities you're dealing with. And so as an organisation, when you're promoting people, when you're developing people, you have to think about the context that they're coming from. And you have to think about people as individuals rather than just just like lumps of people. So we do have a bit of a ceiling, I think, in the sector where, um, again, the research shows that there's a there's a glass ceiling at about 50, 60 K. And above that, you start to see a real sort of a thinning out of black and ethnic minority communities being represented. So there's there's some there's got there's something there that we've got to look at in more detail. Ben, I can see you're dying to come in on on that. <laughs> well, I, I think just following on um, from from Shazia's point, I, th- I think in answer to the question, there's, there's there's two points. So I think the first is what we do in our own organisations, and the second is what happens across the sector. Um, I'll touch briefly on the sector, actually, because I think it's the easier one before I get into our own organisation. So if I think about my journey into local government, so as I said, I became an officer. Um, I was on the graduate scheme, so the precursor to the LGA, um, for, for those of you avid listeners that will remember the IDA that was there before, um, came up with a graduate development scheme in the same, um, I suppose, lens through which the civil service fast track, the NHS grad scheme operated. Um, and the reason that they came up with, with, with such focused work around their grad scheme was thinking about the future trajectory of local government leaders um, and the retirement gap that would happen as, as those leaders aged um, from an officer side and trying to fill that. If I think about my cohort, and this was back in 2008, I can only think of one person on a cohort of about 30 who wasn't white. And so if they're the future chief execs and they're the future leaders across the sector, there's, there's, a, there's a challenge to be done in there. Um, the second thing I'd touch on though is our own organisations and absolutely agree with what Shazia is saying. So Manchester has gone through quite a lot of, of quite deep thinking on where we're at on this. Obviously, you know, we've, we've proclaimed, particularly from an elected member perspective, you know, we've always saw ourselves at the forefront of equalities. But staff really started to say to us back in 2009, sorry, sorry, 2019, when we did a review, that actually um, it wasn't good enough. And I think part of the role of being leaders um, in, in the sector is listening to that. And I think just, 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 just two sets of statistics to emphasise that. So if I think about in 2021, the number of black, Asian and minority ethnic staff that we had in the city council overall, that was about 1,517. 
But the number of black, Asian, minority ethnic staff at grade 10 and above was only 37 out of that. And the number of black, Asian, minority ethnic staff on SS grades was only six. So there has to be some real focused work. So, so we've taken a workforce equality strategy that's been led and co-produced by our staff, precisely looking at the reasons that sit behind that. So looking at things around kind of our leadership pathway programme, what we're doing around work experience, reverse mentoring, all of those things. And if you think about where we are in 2022, we've by no means cracked it. So the total number of black Asian minority ethnic staff overall, 1,561. So it's only really gone up by 50. But if we look at grade 10, whereas in 2021, we were talking about 37, that's gone up to 60 people that are now grade 10 and above. And we've taken the number of people in SS grades from six to eight. So part of what I'm getting at is that I think there is specific things we need to do as organisations. If we're talking about developing our own talent internally, where we allow people to thrive in bringing them full selves to work. And that can be replicated. You know, our disabled staff have got similar challenges in terms of representation at senior level. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that I don't think the challenge in the sector is getting people through the door. The challenge is progression. And then the challenge is enjoying where you work and feeling comfortable where you work when you've progressed. A, so that you stay, and B, so that you can bring other people with you. Um, and I think, I think that's, that's where we're getting at. And I think, I think we must all do that as organisations, but I don't think we should let the sector off the hook more broadly as well. Yeah, and can you say a bit more about how you've, how you've done that, how you've seen that growth? Has it been changes to how you recruit or what, what's, what's made the difference? I mean, if I'm honest, a bit of everything. So um, from, from the 2019 review that we did, and I guess as, as a politician, this is really quite a difficult thing. So we've, um, every report we've done, we've taken to scrutiny. They've been in public meetings. We've allowed our staff to come and talk to us at full council. Um, so it's been a very, very public thing, but intentionally so. Because I think, I think what that's shown staff is that the organisation recognises that the problem isn't on their shoulders. And I think for, for so long, the go-to has been, well, we'll just do another mentoring scheme. We'll give you the experiences that you need to help you progress. But actually realising there's other reasons behind that. So the Leadership Pathway Programme um, has, has been brilliant. Um, and and that's, that's been part of it. We set up a talent and diversity team within HR that have led, led the way. Um, we've changed how we recruit. But we've really focused on the fact that actually we have got talent in our organisation that we need to help progress. Some directorates did that really well beforehand and others didn't. So how can we learn from some of those other directorates as well? So, I mean, all of our stuff and our new strategy, and I think just last month we took an update to one of our scrutiny committees. So um, we've been really honest that we need to keep publishing this information online um, and being really open and accountable and holding ourselves to account as the progress that we make. Yeah, sure. Uh, Shazia, you wanted to come back on that and then I'll come to you, Laura. Uh, no, it was just to add that um, I think many, many local authorities, certainly, you know, the the, the last two that I've worked for um, most recently um, have been doing that sort of big conversation uh, that, that Bev's talking about. And I think that's really important and lots and lots of councils are doing that. But I think um, what's really important is for senior leadership team to kind of show up and be part of that. And what I'm, uh, I was at the race, we have a race equality network, which is a staff network, um, just a couple of days ago. And we were talking about this very, very issue. And what they were saying to me was that 
we've got a leadership program which is brilliant and we've got we've started doing all of that stuff and we've got development programs and we have in the conversation around you know what it means to be privileged etc and um uh, you know all, all of those conversations what they were saying is that how 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 does SLT help us to take the skills that we have which people aren't seeing um, because we have many skills as a community, you know, as a, as a group of people. And how do we take that to help us to get into career progression? And it's not enough to put leadership, just leadership programs. And it's the wraparound that goes around that. It's the mentoring that goes around that. It's the succession planning. It's the spotting the talent in the organisation and creating the opportunity that then enables people to bridge that across. And I can, I'm talking about that from personal experience. When I was going through my kind of career, um, I didn't. I didn't belong to a network. I didn't. The, you know, this this kind of whole agenda is really exposed now and open, and people are having these conversations, which is brilliant. But that wasn't happening ten years ago. I was kind of isolated on my own, working work my way through. Um, so I personally think that you know, as a as a senior leader myself. I have to make sure that we're doing more than putting courses on. I'm not saying that that's all we're doing, but for us as an organisation at Waltham Forest, we want to make sure that we're providing that proper leadership at all levels so that um, people can learn from the things that we've done, the skills that we have, in the same way as you might, I might be talking here, or I might be going to a public forum to talk about leadership or, or something else. It's how do you share that within your own staff and how do you grow, home grow your staff? So, and as Bev said, really important point about people being happy, trusting, content at work, part of the organisation who say that actually I belong here and I want to be and I want to grow and there are opportunities for me to grow within. So I think that's really, that's kind of a subtle thing that sits around the other things that we put on which are, which are more formal. Absolutely. Uh, Laura, so you're nodding. <laughs> Did you want to add on that point? No, I, I mean, I agree with everything Bev and Chazia have, have said. I I, um, I mean, I, I think visibility is really important and telling stories and narratives around um, success and being kind of open and but also talking about the struggles and difficulties, because I think that that learning and openness is really important. Um, I think it's also worth noting that I think that in our large cities so london and manchester um we do have quite diverse um kind of entry into um local government but that isn't the case across the board nationally and i think there there is something around um around how we create relevance um for local authorities in certain communities um in um across the country um which i think has a has a role for officers but also um um, politically about how we structure local government um, and how we make local government really relevant for certain communities in certain places. And I think that's that's it's important to to recognise because I, I I agree. I think there is more relevance when, and you can see that through um, through the diversity that we have in local authorities in in London and Manchester and other large cities. So so we, so we just we touched on before um, this this sort of the sense that prejudice isn't often overt anymore it's often more subtle and i think um often unintentional as well and i just wonder if anyone would like to sort of describe a bit more about how that works and perhaps how as you know individual officers who are who are line managers and who are involved in recruitment processes you know how can they be aware of that of those issues and perhaps counter them in in some way so uh, 
uh, to answer that question slightly differently. So um, as a woman, um, I've been, my the, the key people that promoted me and gave me opportunities were white middle-aged men. So don't always assume that it's, got, you know, it's your, and actually the prejudice I've had when I was young um, and I, I was a director, it was older women. Um, when I was um, sort of had been director for a while, it was often people from my own community who were who were pigeonholing me because I didn't look like a traditional Muslim, uh, even though I am a Muslim. <laughs> um, uh, so there, so sometimes that prejudice comes uh, from from different places, and sometimes the people who spot the opportunity in you. Um, I don't always look like you. And, and so I just kind of wanted to just say that because there are, and you need those, you need people in your, in, in your career and in your life who kind of see the potential in you, believe in you um, and the friends that you have that help you kind of along the way at work. You need all of those things to be able to be successful, I think. And we all need to remember those when we're helping uh, our, our other people along the way and kind of ensuring that they're getting those opportunities as well so uh, I think that's really important um not everybody is going to always have an unconscious bias that's negative do you know what I mean it's like we're all bought we all come with biases Mm -hmm. it's just natural and we sort of talked about this at the beginning at the start of our conversation but um, I think it's about the organisation having a space for those conversations to take place. And we recently had something called the Big Conversation. And actually what really came out of that were um, staff saying that they really enjoyed the, the elements of that, which talked about assumptions and about perceptions and allowing a space in the organisation or in your team or in your directorate or wherever that is to be able to have the space to have that conversation. Um, that whole thing about privilege and the complexity of that and what that means. I I remember two years ago when we were having this conversation at a Brent Council with some of our staff, I realised that actually I was more privileged than a black female. And I hadn't really occurred to me because I'd sort of put myself in the black box. But actually, when I heard about their lived experiences, I realised, oh, actually, <laughs> my my experiences haven't been quite that bad, you know. So, so there's so it's a space. It's a space to create that and have that conversation. But it's not enough to just have the conversation. It's like, so what? What do you do with that? How do you embed that into the organisation? How do you hear that in terms of your policies and your procedures? And how do you how do you think about that in terms of recruitment? How do you think about that in terms of the way that you deliver services to your communities? Because actually what we're trying to do is have those lived experiences. So uh, I think it's creating the space and then doing something with the conversation that you have and what you learn and hear from each other. And, I, and I'd say as well, so so I think I think organisationally there's a responsibility to set the culture that enables those things to happen. But there also has to be within an organisation a sense of um, personal responsibility and accountability. So I'm probably a little bit more uncompromising than most that you know, if we're going to put those opportunities on, if we're going to make sure that people have access to unconscious bias training, the ability to to have all of those spaces, that there has to be um, an, a personal accountability for people to educate themselves and to learn from themselves how they can become better people and how they manage their biases. So, I, I, I think I think the culture is important, 
But it, it's not for an organisation, I think, to abscond personal responsibility and that we've all got a role to play in that um, around educating ourselves and recognising that if you're always learning, you're always learning. Um, you would do in every other bit of your professional career. Um, you know, so, so I think, I think, yes, we can bring in panels, um, that, that, that recruit differently. We can put on lots of training opportunities to share ideas, but ultimately there does come a point in time in an organization where you have to say to people, actually, you know, <laughs> you should have learned. I, I, I agree, Bev, but I, I think there's something about helping articulate what good looks like that is different from what it looked like before. So, it's about being exactly as you're describing, being managers, especially who are learning managers, open to feedback, um, engaged with the individuals in their team in a kind of really personalized way. So they, re and really listening and, and making sure that they, they understand that. I think we can create, we can create those spaces and give them the tools. And then it's saying, actually, you know, that is what successful management looks like here. Um, and we want to, we want to reinforce and, and, and support that process. Um, but and I think that is the same almost throughout the employee life cycle because they're the they're the, the points there are points obvious points that we tend to look at when we're looking at how do we increase diversity and we support inclusion with our organisations um, and I think but I think also we need to take that that kind of conscious that learning loop um, because we have to recognise that although we've been talking about this for a long time the pace of change is frustratingly slow. Um, and and I, I think we are looking in the right places and attempting the right things. But there's something for me about how do we speed up the pace of innovation and kind of almost design thinking applied to the interventions and the, the support that we're using. Um, and one of the examples of that, I, I guess, for me is that is avoiding the average trap. So we have we do have a tendency to kind of say, OK, here are the things that we offer. Um, um, and as organisations generally, when people join the organisation, we tend to put them through an onboarding process, as an example, where we're just, we're kind of, we're telling them what, who they need to be um, and and what we expect from them. But there's much less about actually engaging with them about who they are and what makes them successful and kind of that real individual personalisation approach that can, that can really support. So I think there's something, there's something for me about, Actually, it's not necessarily always the big kind of the big programs and the um, the the big pieces of work where we put stuff in place. It's actually sometimes it's the small cultural things about how we engage with um, with staff generally because we're all individuals, irrelevant of which group we might sit in, um, and how we get the best out of individuals and how we equip managers and 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 organisations to be able to achieve that. Thank you. And can, can we come on to talk a bit about elected members? Um, and Bev, I'm going to come, come to you on this. I thought I'd escaped that for the day. <laughs> do, I mean, from a Manchester perspective, do you think your chamber is representative enough? or And, would you, and what would you say the picture is sort of nationally? Um, so, so I would say that we're, we're in a fairly privileged position in Manchester that's probably more akin to London Borough than than the rest of, of local government, if I'm honest. So um, when I was first elected back in 2011, um, I was the youngest councillor at 26. 11 years later at 37, I'd probably say I'm fairly middle of the road, um, which is a nice place to be. Um, for the last four years, we've been over 50% women. So we're about 44, sorry, 54, 55% um, women. Um, and I'd say in terms of, 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 of black and Asian representation, 
Um, some of our communities are well represented. Um, some of our new, newer communities less so. So, so there's, there's a challenge in that around always keeping it. When your population changes, you need to make sure that you're keeping up with that. Um, you know, so if I was to take an area of Manchester that was historically predominantly black African and black Caribbean, um, that area is now a lot more, um, Eritrean and Somali, um, and newly arrived communities that, that need to make sure they find their voice. So making sure that we had, you know, a young Somali man elected in Mossside was really important because that's what the community looks and, and feels like. So, so I'd say we, we always have to challenge ourselves to be better. We always have to, um, to do more, but, but that, that doesn't come naturally. You have to put, um, the same effort in, in politics as you do, um, in, in the officer view of the world. You know, we have to run mentoring. We have to bring people on, do shadowing, all of that stuff. And what I would say, though, is that that does my Manchester experience sometimes shields me um, to the broader experience of elected members in local government. Um, and, and I still go to national events where I'm called love and, and dear. And what is it you do? And I'm like, well, actually, uh, I run one of the biggest cities outside of London. Love. Thanks. Um, so, so, you know, there's, 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 there's always little little challenges that are thrown at you, um, and that's the nature, I think, of, of working with a sector um, that that is uh, diverse in its absence of diversity sometimes as well. Um, but but I would say, um, you know, and I can only really speak for, for for the Labour Party in that sense that that some of this has been really conscious and intentional, um, but that's come from our our political backgrounds. To be honest, you know, I got involved in politics because. It surprisingly wasn't a burning desire to get involved in local government because as a kid I couldn't have told you what local government was but I didn't see people that looked or sounded very much like me so it, it piqued a natural interest and that and that's where politics is is different but I would say there is another challenge to local government that, that, that we don't talk about so um my mother thinks that I've completely lost my senses you know giving up a, a good and proper job um, to, to, to go and run one of the best cities in the world. But the reason that she thinks that is it. So I don't get a pension. Um, you know, th thanks Eric Pickles back when you, you scrapped that in 2012 with the Localism yeah. Act. But, but there is something about if we want good people to dedicate their time, to dedicate energy and resources, then we need to make sure that actually the, the environment is right for them. And that's not just around remuneration. That's around kind of the culture of being active in politics at the moment. Um, and, and that's a challenge. Yeah. And do you think this kind of abuse that people can get is a deterrent to, to people from diverse backgrounds who are often yeah, yeah. targeted? Yeah. You know, we, we've been chatting about this in, in across core cities, actually. Um, women are more likely to get abuse than men. Um, but women who are black or Asian, women who are gay, women who are disabled are more likely to get more of that. Um, and I, I think there is, there is something in that. You know, I've, um, just, just a few weeks ago had to come and get the police and a health and safety assessment on my counselor advice surgery, where I now have to sit in a sectioned bit of the room with two meters between me and anybody that comes in on the basis of information that we were receiving. So, I don't talk about that very much because I think that's off-putting to the people that we want to bring with us um, for, for future generations. But but there is a challenge there um, and it does vary across the country. 
I just want yeah. to say something about um, how you encourage more people into, um, you know, into kind of local being a counsellor and, and, and local representation. And I think maybe we collectively don't do enough around that. So you do then then get a particular type of person that ends up becoming a counsellor. And sometimes that's reflected in age profile, sex mm. and other things. So, um, you know, we all have um uh, 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 school councils we have uh, many things that that enable young people to be more proactive and i think there is a real people just don't understand what councils do they think we just pick up the bins and a bit of a pain in the neck when it comes to planning permission and licensing and things like that <laughs> they don't realize in complex cities like manchester and london and and, and in all places um, we do many, many, many things. And actually, as a counsellor, you have greater influence over those things and invo- involved in policy, I think, than you do probably as an MP. So how do we create, uh, how do we help people understand what those? I did a local, I did a government politics degree, but I didn't do a government politics t- degree to be, a, to be a, uh, a civil servant or in working in local government. I did it because I was interested in politics and changing the world. That was what was driving me. Um, so I think we just, as a, as a nation, we just need to understand what councils do and the depth of what we do. And actually, if you re- I think pandemic showed a bit of that, but even then councils and councillors didn't really get any recognition, did we? We got, we, we kind of like, we were doing all this stuff, but nobody really knew that we were doing it. We were just getting on with it and making sure we were keeping our borough safe and our authorities and our, our residents safe. So there's something, there's something about that, I think, which is important and we need to change, flip that so people understand that they can influence things. It can be a really effective um, way to um, change the world, and you know, as you might do in other other things. And I think uh, it's important that we we build that knowledge. Yeah, yeah. So that's this this the diversity challenge on top of just the challenge of getting people involved in the first place on that. And I mean, that probably kind of brings us on to our next area for discussion around well, how you know, are councils serving their the diverse needs of their communities? And actually, is there an issue if the people making decisions in local government at the top don't reflect those communities that that they, that they may not be or they may not be making the best decisions? So when I was uh, working at Brent Council, we yeah. did a um, Black Community Action Plan, which was in a direct response to um, the death of, or the killing of George Floyd, but also the Black Lives Matters movement. Um, and actually that was a council taking very much a direct response to kind of recognising that we maybe weren't doing enough with that community. And uh so the the leader of the council and the chief executive fronted up a public meeting with just under 100 uh residents that came to that meeting and it was represented from like you know community leaders but also just some students residents it was really diverse there was women there there were you know different ages etc and it was hard to hear some of the stuff that they raised with the council about where they wanted some changes, etc. But I think being having the kind of courage to have that conversation with the community is really important. And importantly, the community to then feel like they've been listened to is really important. So what they said to us was, change some of your policies, change some of the ways that you work. 
we are already doing that on the ground. Uh, we're well networked. We know how to engage with our communities. We just need you to listen to us in a different way and create a different space for us to be able to to be active within that. And and that's where the Black Community Action Plan came from. And also the leader and the and the chief executive did not change the top 10 priorities that they identified. I mean, there is a habit sometimes where you talk to the community, you hear, and then you take it into the council and it goes through the kind of like the the, the, the senior kind of services and <laughs> directors and it gets slightly changed. Normally with about 6,000 more words as well. Yeah, yeah. And it gets, you know, and there was a real, there was a real drive to not change that, to really try and listen to, and then it got taken to full council, which gives it that stamp of kind of, uh, uh credibility and and then it got turned from a one-year plan into a 10-year plan so there's just some things um that you sometimes you have to do and you have to be proactive and you have to listen and again I've, i mean this is an area of work that i lead on uh, we're doing a lot of work at the moment at waltham forest where we've gone out and done a big public engagement with the community to try and listen to what they wanted to say to us about how they want their services delivered how they want equality and diversity inclusion to be considered um and we've kind of taken the decision We've listened to them. That was over a year ago, and we've now we've now got a corporate strategy which is entirely about neighbourhoods because that's what community are telling us. They're telling us they want to work and they want us to work effectively in their neighbourhoods. And I'm just trying to say that there is you could consultation, engagement, listening to our communities and the diversity of that has to be then. Um, demonstrated in your policies and you have to be able to be able to be able to point to and be and demonstrate that actually they've been listened to and we're making those changes for us that's about really people saying we want to we we want you to work with us in our neighborhoods and work um, and deliver our services in those localities and recognize that we are different in our neighborhoods and ha- and how do we engage in those so um yeah, that's really interesting and that the, the, the black community action plan can you give any examples of the things the community wanted the council to do differently. Yeah, uh, one of them was about assets. So they said that we we don't have assets in the community and we need investment. We're not we're not interested in one-off grants or small grants. We want to be able to create a space where um, we can own and our community can own and feel part of. So um, they we took a, a, a quite a big large building. Uh, not, multi-million investment um that as i have left now obviously but that as i understand is now open and it's been has got activity happening from it and there's a whole load of stuff that goes with it but that's just one example uh, one of them was about curriculum changing the curriculum with schools and really starting to bring the conversation of the you know black history and and recognizing that um and that was a piece of work that was carried out with the local schools and and that's been adopted so so there's just two examples but there were there were there were many other things that were about um empowerment that's really what the community were talking about it's like give us the tools that empower us it's the kind of you know give give the farmer a seed and they'll grow a tree it's that kind of thing rather than it just being piecemeal I think that was the key thing that came out of Black Community Action Plan. I think that type of engagement, that real community engagement that helps design and de- in, and to a certain extent, actually that kind of joint delivery of service and support to, to communities is massively important. And I think it's 
the future of how we need to evolve the services in in local government. But I think it has a really interesting uh, kind of link to the point previously, um, where we we're talking about how do we get representation and how do we feel more relevant as in local authorities in order to engage those communities if they feel engaged and listened to and they feel that services and that change can happen when you're engaged like local authorities you know can actually enact you know different ways of working um and tailor tailor experiences of engaging with councils you know through you know through the way they deliver services that is incredibly empowering um and it in encourages people to want to be involved and engaged in that and i think that that becomes a virtuous loop um, where we start to see more representation and that greater level of representation allows us to have better and more kind of more authentic conversations with those communities. Yeah, absolutely. And well, I think we're running out of time, but that's that seems like a very a nice positive note to end on. And I think there's, there's actually been quite a, a lot of positive stories today and the fact that action is being taken and this is, these issues are being taken seriously. But um, as is clear, still still lots more to do. Um, I really liked Bev's comment around the uh, uh, we're all diverse in our lack of diversity, which I think um, sort of speaks to yeah the points around you know the different groups need different different approaches and different ways to to engage and include them. So thank you all for your time, um, and I'm pleased we managed to get get through it without any any major coughing fits or anything because I think everyone's suffering so thank you for, for, for showing up anyway and that's all we have time for so join us again next time on The Local Authority This podcast was brought to you by LGC and TPX Impact Local Government Chronicle or LGC is the leading title for senior local government officers and the authoritative voice of the sector to subscribe to LGC for full online and print access, go to lgcplus.com. TPX Impact is a change agency on a mission to build 21st century public sector institutions, which are catalysts for change in the internet and climate era to radically improve outcomes for communities. For more information, go to tpximpact.com. TPX Impact, transformation that matters.